With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's it like to tell the MMA, mixed martial arts champion of the world, that basically you want to fight him and destroy him? Well, I'm about to find out in this episode, but even more importantly, one of the most important concepts I wrote about in my book, Skip the Line, was this concept I always use, this technique I always use when I want to learn something very fast. It's a great technique. It works phenomenally well. And it's, I call it plus minus equals. The idea is if you want to learn something, let's say you want to get better at tennis or you want to get better at physics, you find a plus, someone who could teach you or coach you or whatever, someone who's vastly superior knowledge and ability. You find a minus, someone, and this is not a negative thing, but you find someone you could teach because as Albert Einstein said, you don't truly understand something unless you can explain it simply to another person. And then you find equals, and that's people who are on the same path and journey of improvement as you, and we're at roughly around the same level, and you kind of learn with each other or compete with each other or exchange notes with each other. And I find this a useful tool, not only, of course, in, in sports or educational learning, but in business. Like when I, the very first time I became an entrepreneur, I had a company that made websites for other companies. And very quickly, I got to know the CEOs and founders of the other companies, particularly in New York City, that were doing the same thing. And we would run into each other all the time. We would run into each other going in and out of clients' offices while we were competing for business. We would run into each other at parties. We would call each other up and have lunch or dinner sometimes just to compare notes. And even though we were enemies in some sense, we were competing against each other, we were all growing together. And to this day, more than 25 years later, I still keep in touch with these people and it's my network that has helped me considerably over the years. And so in any case, uh, these were my equals. I, I wish in business that I initially had more of a plus. I didn't know this concept then and I think I made a lot of mistakes that cost me a lot of money because I didn't have a plus in business at first. But I did have equals and I did have a minus. I definitely always made it a point to work with my employees and other people and and kind of give back where I could and, and help people where I could. But again, it took me a long time to realize how important the plus was as well. And now whenever I start learning something, boom, the first thing I do is look for plus minus equal. Now, why did I start this idea? Well, I didn't. I, I take complete credit for it though. But the actual guy who told me about this idea was the former mixed martial arts champion of the world, Frank Shamrock. And today we're speaking to the man who threatened to destroy him 
Jocko Willink. Jocko's been on the podcast six times in the past. He's back today discussing his new expanded edition of his best-selling leadership strategy and tactics field manual, which contains a new protocol to develop and hone critical decision-making instincts and make them habitual. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. We start talking about robbing people of their food in the 1400s pretty quickly there. Anyway, here's Jocko. He's a great guy. Here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I don't know if you heard about this. My wife was just telling me this. Apparently, a bunch of like billionaires are buying land in Nevada around some Air Force base. I don't know why an Air Force base specifically, because they basically want to have a community where they can take extreme ownership in their lives and the politics and the governing and, and so on. And I wonder if like this Ayn Rand sort of philosophy, which forget about conservative versus liberal, it's just sort of competence versus incompetence. I wonder if that's what she wrote 50, 60, 70 years ago is what's happening right now, where the competent people are kind of separating for, from the incompetence. You know, I, I guess the the quote competent people could do that, but the competent people, again, quote competent people, there's a lot of things that they need quote incompetent people to do for them. So I don't know how long they'd be able to exist. You know, who's going to build their houses? They can't build their own houses, right? Competent people. You still need competent people to build houses though. You don't want incompetent people doing it. Right, right. But I, I guess you said billionaires, you know? So yeah. what I'm saying is billionaires, there's a lot of things that billionaires can't do, you know, whether it's know how to farm correctly, you know, where are they going to get food from? Do the billionaires know how to seed fields and go out there? They're, they don't know how to do any of that. Do they know how to hunt? They don't know how to hunt. They don't know how to butcher animals. They don't know how to do any of that. At least a lot of them don't. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Do they know how to build houses? No. Do they know how to install plumbing? No, they don't. Do they know how to wire a house? No, they don't know how to do that. So there's a lot of stuff that they don't know how to do, not to mention they don't know how to make a pair of jeans, right? They don't know how to make a pair of boots. So sure, they can go live in a little enclave somewhere, but they're going to need a lot of help and support inside that enclave, which they paid for. I always wonder about this. Like if you were transported back in time to like the 1400s or the, or the year 1000, how would you distinguish yourself so that they wouldn't immediately kill you? Like, I don't think I would be able to do that. I don't know how to, like any, everything you just described, I don't know how to do anything. Like I could turn on a computer and now I'm, now I'm in business, <laughs> but like you could do things like you, you know how to do things. Like what would you do to convince them to not kill you? Well, I would kill them. <laughs> That's what I would do is I would kill them. And yeah, you know, I think I, I've pretty good a pretty good fighter. And I think I, that's what I'd do is fight people and kill them and then rule. Like, do you think fighting techniques back then were inferior to what you've, you know, you've obviously learned hand-to-hand -hand combat as well as of course, fighting with weapons that didn't exist back then. But do you think the, the science of, and the education of hand-to-hand -hand combat, whether it's a, a martial art or, or the ways you've learned or whatever, do you think that's advanced significantly from what people knew People in the thousands, that's all they did was train themselves on hand-to-hand -hand combat. Unarmed combat, yes, I think we're superior now. So, you know, if it was me against another man in the year 1000 and it was no weapons involved, I would probably destroy them just because I know 
how to fight really well unarmed combat. And obviously I'd beat them with any kind of firearm, but you know, it's them, they have a sword. I have a sword. I've never really fought with a sword before. That could be a little bit problematic. Now I would understand some things like distance and I'd do distance management and I'd probably be, be pretty decent at it, but it might take me a few, uh, a couple months to get up to speed before I'd start challenging people out of the game. But that's interesting though. Like, well, let's say though, you're just, you just land there and there's a guy with a sword and, and you know, you have to fight him. What would your instincts, like, how would you basically minimize the effect of him having a sword and maximize your advantages? Like, what would your instincts be? Yeah. So what I would do is I would stay outside the range of the sword until he took a swing with a sword. And then I would close the distance, meaning I would get close to him where that sword is rendered ineffective. And this is something that I am good at, you know, from years of boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, jujitsu, so that I would be able to stay out of the range of his sword. And then once he swung the sword at me, I would then close the distance, which means I would get close to him, tie up the sword, get a handle on the sword, get a hand on the sword, get control of him. And then I'd probably be able, in fact, I would be able to outmaneuver him once we were just in a grappling competition, I would be able to defeat him. You know, I've, I've fought people that have had implements before, like baseball bats, knives, and axes. And so closing that distance and, and some of these situations are you're, you're doing like sparring or we have knives that are fake knives, but they shock you and things like that. So I've, I have experience closing that distance. And so I think I do pretty good. You know, if I was unarmed and they were armed, then I, I, I might even take that approach. If I was armed, I might like throw my sword at them and then close the distance, get close to them. Just because I know that I, I have superior skills there. You know, I've been training for a very long time to out-grapple people. So, yeah, that's probably what I would do. Um, and then, you know, you – but sword against sword, they're going to have superior skills. They've been training with it for a sure. long time. I haven't trained any sword fighting or very limited sword fighting. So, you know, knife fighting I would do okay. But knife fighting is very – you know, knife fighting scary because – even when you're in close, the, the blade is still a, a, a usable weapon because it's a short, you know, it's a shorter blade, whereas a big sword is harder to manage in at close range. So I'd rather, I'd actually rather fight somebody that had a sword than a knife. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, so basically, I mean, you wouldn't be required to fight with the sword. You could do whatever you want. Your goal is to survive and right. convince them to not kill you and, and maybe make you or have you train their people how you fight. So that right. would be the goal. Like you ever, you ever see this book? There's a book uh, by Mark Twain, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Yep. He goes back into King Arthur's court. And the next thing you know, he's building phone networks and, and guns. I would never be able to do any of that stuff, mm. but fighting is key. Yeah. I, I think fighting uh, on the hierarchy of, you know, the, the, the capabilities for a person to have fighting is way up there. Man, I don't know how to do any of that. Because, hey, look, if you're good at hunting, I'll just beat you up and take your food. If you're good at growing, plant, planting, and farming, I'll beat you up and take your food. If you're good at, it doesn't really matter what you're good at because I'll beat you up and take your food unless you're good at fighting as well. And then I've got an issue. Now, the only way that you can uh, outmaneuver me is if you're good at leadership, right? So if you can band together with three or four of your friends and you can lead them to attack me, and now you three or four you and three or four of your friends can now defeat me. And through leadership, you're able to achieve victory over the bully Jocko that's running around beating everyone up. 
<laughs> well, let's talk about this. This will segue into your most recent book, which is an unbelievable book, by the way. But let's say three, you and three of your friends, all that you've worked with for decades in the Navy SEALs, let's say three of your friends and you are transported back and you're up against 20 guys on horses uh, who, who suddenly encounter you and they're trying, they don't know who you're, they're trying to decide whether to, to make you live or die. How would you use leadership? Like, do you think, again, leadership has advanced in such a way, uh, you know, in a superior way to how they had leadership back then that you would be able to maneuver your way to, to winning such a fight? Yeah, I think I do pretty good. Um, and, you know, I, I would say out of the gate, like the situation that you said, 20 guys on horses, three or four of my friends are transported back in time. You know, what am I going to do? Well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to these people. And I guess we have to make an assumption that we're able to com communicate with them. Maybe they're speaking uh, old English and I can sort of hear them. Or actually, it has to be a little bit, little bit better than old English. I wouldn't really be able to understand old English. But let's say I can understand what they're saying. I think by listening to what they have to say, finding out what they're trying to accomplish, being able to offer what services we have, being able to provide them with something and something of mutual value where, where they actually see value in what we have and our capabilities, then they realize that they might be stronger if they work alongside us and we can build a relationship and then we can move forward. Let, so, so let's say you had 15 minutes to plan, okay, before they arrive. And would you, would you have all three of your friends there with you trying to listen and convince them? Or would you have people spread out and maybe one or two of your friends hidden? I mean, depending on the hostilities of the place that we're going into, but if it's 20 against three, that's not a huge advantage. I might try and disarm them a little bit by putting my, some of my friends kind of in an overwatch position to stand back and, and, and just watch. And cause I think people would feel a lot less threatened by one person, three or four people. Now they're all of a sudden, Oh, what is this? A gang of some kind, but one person, they're a little bit more apt to say, Oh, who are you? What are you doing here? And I'm, I would tell the truth, you know, say I've got some friends where we just arrived here. We're from a different dimension of time and we want to make our way and provide help to people. We have a lot of knowledge that we think we could share and, and we, we'd like to move forward and, and talk to you about what you're doing and what your goals are and see if we can help you achieve those goals. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for those answers. I, I asked that question a lot to people and that was people just normally just don't have any answer because uh -huh. there, there's very few answers that work, but that, but you're right. Fighting is a core, a core skill. And leadership allows you to effectively listen and communicate and, and you know, and just to describe, I'll, I'll describe this in, in the intro so people have already heard it, but I really enjoy this leadership strategy and tactics field manual expanded edition that you just put out. It's like everything you wrote in the dichotomy of leadership and um, I always forget the names of books. But Extreme the ownership. Extreme ownership. Extreme ownership. That's like a very special book for me because just the concept of that, that's one of those books where it's a great book to read. But if I just tell people the title, they're going to get it right away. Meaning they should still read the book, of course. But like, I, I love the concept of extreme ownership, which is that don't blame anyone else for anything. Figure out what your role was in the good situations, the bad situations, and, and, and so on. And this is like the start of leadership. This is the start of being an effective leader. It I don't isn't. know if you want to add to that that definition of extreme ownership. No, you know, what's interesting is I, I had somebody ask me the other day, speaking of fighting and speaking of leadership, I had somebody ask me the other day, in terms of jujitsu, what is like the first advancement that you could make in leadership? Like what's the first step? So in, in jujitsu, you get like your white belt and that's the first thing that you do is you get a white belt. And he said, you know, what's the, what's the 
most fundamental basic thing that's going to help you in leadership. And I said the, the first thing is, and this is very similar to jujitsu because in jujitsu, people might say, hey, what's the hardest belt to get in jujitsu? And the hardest belt to get jujitsu, people think, oh, it's the black belt because you have to train for 10 years. But actually the hardest belt to get in jujitsu is the white belt. It's actually starting to do jujitsu. That's the hardest one. You've got to put your ego aside. You've got to have discipline. You've got to be able to step onto that mat for the first time and be vulnerable and know that you're going to get choked out. That takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of humility to do that. With leadership, similar to what you're saying right now, the first step and the most powerful step is when you look around at all the problems that you have in your business, all the problems that you have with your team, all the problems that you have in your life with your family, and you say to yourself, all these problems are because of me. And that's the hardest step to take, but it's, as you pointed out, the most powerful, the most powerful attitude that you can have is this is my fault. I'm going to take extreme ownership and I'm going to get things fixed. It, it's so true. Like I, I remember telling you this story and when we very first discussed extreme ownership, this was back in 2001. Um, someone was really encouraging me to sue my stockbroker. Uh, and my friend was saying, look, everyone's suing their stockbroker and they're getting settlements and you lost all this money. You should sue your stockbroker. And I remember thinking, there is no way I'm going to do that because even though at that moment I was like dead broke and suffering and depressed, uh, I, I was not going to move past this moment if I just depended on a lawsuit, uh, against my friend, you know, who was my, who was my broker, you know, if I was depending on that to save me rather than really learning and understanding that I made serious mistakes and learning from them and moving past that, I would never get past that. I just had this instinct about it, but I didn't have words to, to describe what I was feeling until your book, Extreme Ownership came out, which was again, such a great book. One of my, one of my core books that I recommend people. How could people sue their stockbrokers? What were they claiming? They were claiming the stockbroker said it was okay or not giving them the guidance to, to help them manage risk properly, which who, who knows, right? Until 2001, you never, I never knew you could sue your stockbroker. It just became like a thing that happened after the internet bust, but there was no way I was going to do that. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And you know, I, I find, I mean, you obviously when you think of leadership, you think in terms of teams and groups, but as an individual, like, let's say you're a, a, a jujitsu fighter and you know, it's you versus one other person in the ring. And I don't know, you slipped and fell. You can either blame bad luck why you lost, or you could take ownership. And I find a lot of people in competitive situations, even on an individual level, blame bad luck rather than ownership. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And then you're left with no recourse because if I am in a fight and I slip and fall and I say, well, I just slipped, I don't change anything. But if I say, you know what? I slipped and fell. What kind of strategy did I have? Why didn't I take into account my balance? I need to work, do some more drills on my balance. I need to practice when I am off balance. I need to change what kind of footwear I'm wearing to make sure I don't slip. Like there's actually things that I can do if I take ownership. If I don't take ownership, I just shrug my shoulders and keep going and nothing changes. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. 
And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What do you struggle with taking ownership with now? Like given that you've written these books, given that you have a company, Echelon Front, that advises leaders and companies and so on, where do you still struggle taking extreme ownership? You know, one of the questions that I got asked, I was actually at a live event in New York City and I was doing, I was recording a podcast live and someone in the crowd, a woman got up and said, you know, my, I think it was her daughter had 
some kind of horrible cancer, some kind of horrible disease. And the question was, you know, how do I take ownership of that? And what, what I answered was, and this is what I believe, um, you know, clearly there are things in life that you, that happen to you, that you, that you literally can't take ownership of. I mean, your child gets cancer. That's, that is not on you that your child gets cancer. And what I said was you can't take ownership of what happened in that situation, but what you can take ownership of is how you're going to respond to it. So what are you going to do? Are you going to break down? Are you going to be, uh, you know, a total disaster, an emotional disaster, or are you going to be strong? Are you going to be provide good role model for your daughter? Are you going to do your best to find the best doctors? You know, what, what can you do? How can you take ownership of your response? And that's really the best thing that you can do. And when you have that attitude, then it's not that hard to take ownership of everything that's going on in your world. And, and I'll give you another example. This is one that, again, catches people off guard. Um, conducting an operation, I was conducting an operation in Iraq, and we were supposed to take helicopters on this operation. It was a probably about a 250-mile drive or distance. So we decided we were going to take helicopters. Well, as we were you know, getting close to the execution timeline, we, there was a massive sandstorm. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, but in Iraq, they have legitimate biblical sandstorms where it is like you are watching a wave of sand hit. And when that wave of sand hits, you can't see probably 10 feet. All satellite communications are down. It's just totally, it's, it's crazy to watch. And, and it gets dark. It's, it's wild and you watch it come. So there was one of those stand, sandstorms was predicted. And so the helicopters were like, hey, we're not going to fly because of the sandstorm. And for me, it was like, okay, roger that. We're going to take our vehicles. We already had a backup plan to use our Humvees and drive down there. We had to leave a little bit earlier, but we were still going to get the job done. And for many years, you know, guys would say, oh, well, we couldn't do this mission because the weather wasn't good. And for me, it was like, take ownership of that. If you take ownership of the fact that you can't control the weather, well, what you can do is come up with a good backup plan, right? You should have contingency plans and everything that you do. So that way you are taking ownership. So once you have that attitude that you're going to take ownership of everything that's going on, it, it actually over time becomes a habit. And it's a, it's a pretty solid habit to have. It's a lot less excuses. That's really interesting, like the power of a backup plan, because yes, I agree with that. But also it takes a lot of experience to know what sort of situations could come up that you need a backup plan for. Yeah. And in that case, you know, in Iraq, 99% of the time, you know, it doesn't rain over there. There's no, well, very seldom does it rain. So you very seldom do you need a backup plan for the weather when it comes to helicopters, except for the fact that helicopters break down, uh, air crew can't make it, you know, things happen. So we always had a backup plan, but that's just one example. You know, there's, there's so many things when you're in a leadership position. You know, when you're in a leadership position and you've got a team of, you've got, let's say, 100 people at your organization and you own some stores, right? You own some stores. And one of, at one of your stores, one of your cashiers is rude to a customer and the customer writes a bad Yelp review. And you could say, well, you know, it's just one of my cashiers is an idiot. You know, that's it. That's not my fault. And it's pretty easy to understand that, right? It's pretty easy to say, well, you know, it's not my fault. I'm not even, I don't even in the store all day. And one of the cashiers was rude to a customer. We'll fire them and move on. 
that's not taking ownership at all, right? And so therefore you don't change anything. And guess what happens in a week later? Someone else is, another cashier is rude to a customer and you have the same problem. But if you say, oh, one of my cashiers was rude to a customer, that's my fault. As the CEO of this company with 100 employees, that's my fault. From now on, I need to make sure I properly train all my cashiers. I need to make sure that the cashiers understand why it's important. I need to screen my cashiers a little bit stronger to make sure that they have the right attitude going in there. And I need to do some kind of spot checks so that they see that I'm there so that they know that they need to treat our customers with respect. So there's four changes that I just made based on the fact that we had this problem and I took ownership of it. Now, does this guarantee that I'm never going to have a rude cashier? No, it doesn't, but it's definitely going to improve the situation. So again, taking ownership is infinitely superior to shrugging your shoulders or placing blame and saying, oh, that cashier is just a bad person. Okay. What did you do about it is the question. Right. And it's interesting. And it's actually related to the woman who asked you about how her child had a disease and how can she take extreme ownership of that? Sometimes a cashier might really be a bad cashier and you just simply have to fire them. Yep. But does that mean you throw ownership on them? No, you still have to figure out how, where the ownership is in yourself. Like, how do you react to this situation? Do you fire the cashier? Do you train future cashiers better? Do you do you improve the manual and and on and on? And and of course, firing might be a solution, but but you're still taking ownership of of what happens going forward. Yeah, and that's a pretty common question we'll get as well. You know, if if you're working for me, James, and you're not meeting the standard, and I say, well, it's it's my fault. I need to take ownership, so it's my fault. I got to tr train James better. So I invest more training in you. I sit down with you. You still can't do the job. And so I said, well, it's my fault. I need to take ownership. So I, I get you somebody to mentor you. And now you've got a mentor that's helping you still can't do the job. Eventually, I have to take ownership of the fact that you are hurting the team and I need to get rid of you. Now, most of the time we can train people up, but there's some people that aren't capable of doing certain jobs. So yes, you're right. When you take ownership, sometimes taking ownership means you have to get somebody out of a position. That could mean demoting them. It could be laterally transferring them to a different department or Yes, it could mean firing people. Uh, you know, have you been in situations where you fired clients? We have. We have fired a couple clients, not that many, um, but, but a couple times we've fired clients or we've just, you know, we usually we just uh, are able to maneuver the situation so that we're not working with them anymore. But a couple, a couple people along the way, you know, they, they're demanding things that don't make sense. They lack the humility to, to make a change. We go through, of course, when someone doesn't, doesn't listen to what we're saying, that's our fault, right? So if I, if James, if you hire me and you're like, well, I don't get it, Jocko, I say, okay, let me think of another way to explain this. And you say, well, it doesn't make sense to me. That's my fault. I got to figure out a better way to explain it to you. Eventually I might realize that you are not going to change and I am wasting my time. Um, usually James, just FYI, if you're in that bad of a situation, I'm going to write you a letter. I'm going to write, I'm going to put it in writing what's going on. I'm going to explain it to you. And if I ever write you a letter, James, you should listen to what I say, because <laughs> what I'm saying in the letter is correct. And whatever consequences I state in the letter are probably going to happen. So I, I had a CEO that I was working with who I was trying to help. The board brought me in to help. I was trying to help this guy and he liked me. We were getting along great, but he wasn't listening to what I was saying. And I kept asking that he make these changes. You know, he was showing up late to his own meetings, showing, showing up late to board meetings. He was, you know, not coming in prepared. He had a flippant attitude. 
And I was telling him, listen, you, you've got to change this. And, you know, he said, I really appreciate the feedback, but this is not the way it works. And so I wrote him a letter and just went line by line. This is what you need to change. And I said, or you're going to get fired. He said, they can't fire me. And I said, I'm telling you, they're going to fire you. And sure enough, he got fired. Um, so if I write you a letter, James, please listen to what I say. I know now I'm scared. Like I don't want to open up the mail, but, uh, you know, it, it, I find though, you know, I've dealt with hundreds of companies either as an entrepreneur or as an investor or an advisor. And I find that bad habits are really hard to get rid of, particularly among leaders. Like they just, it's really hard for people to change. Yep. There's, for, for me, there's, there's, there's two things that can happen. Number one, a person can recognize, and you, this is what you hope for, a person recognizes that they have shortfalls. A person has an awakening of some kind and they say, oh yeah, you know what? I get it. I can see it. And that's always my goal when I'm working with a company or when I'm working with the leadership team is to let them see, let them, let the truth be revealed to them so I don't have to throw it in their face. Uh, so that's one thing people decide, oh yeah, I get it. This was my fault. And the other thing, you know, unfortunately is like some kind of traumatic incident, whether they get fired, whether they lose a bunch of money and, and those aren't guarantees either, because there's been people that have been fired. Like, you, you know, or when you lost a lot of money in the stock market, you said to yourself, it would have been easier for you to say, well, you know, I had this bad stockbroker. Instead, you said, you know what? I made some dumb decisions and I'm not going to make those decisions again. So you grew. A lot of people, they just sue their stockbroker and say, this wasn't my fault. And they, they don't grow at all. So usually from my perspective, people either have some kind of a traumatic event that, that elicits change in them, or they have an awakening where they become self-aware of the mistakes that they're making and they start to change. But yes, barring those two events, it is definitely difficult to change people's nature. And as you know, I got a section in the book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, where I talk about utilizing people's nature. People have a certain nature to them. Don't, don't fight it. You know, I'm not going to take you, James, who's a cerebral guy, and put you as my frontline you know, prisoner handling combat crew. That's not what I'm doing with you. No, I'm going to have you in the back gathering intelligence and assessing things and giving your opinion about what you think the enemy is going to do. I'm not going to have you out there on the front lines, you know, in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a, with a sword in your hand. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're, just, you're telling me I'm just going to die if I get transported back in time, but that's okay. <laughs> I think that's what will happen. But, you know, I, I like how, I mean, first off, again, about your book, like what I love the most in this book is the table of contents because I got so excited reading the table of contents. You know, you talk about the foundations of leadership, the core tenets. I'm just scrolling it down it now. The principles, you know, what to do about yes men, what to do about when you have imposter syndrome, what to do about, you know, you talk more about extreme ownership. Uh, uh, you know, the imposter syndrome one is, is great because that's something I feel all the time. Uh, you go into the details of maneuvers, communication. I mean, this is like a real manual about leadership. There's so many like boring books about leadership. This is like a, a real guy, encyclopedic guide filled with stories and techniques and, and tactics. It's, it's, it's really, this, how long did it take you to do this? This is a real big project. You know, I write about a thousand words an hour. And so this book is, I don't know, 80,000 words. So it took me 80 hours to write. And you're right. It is a field. Uh, so a, a military field manual is when you need to, um, when you need to figure out how to do an assault on a target, you can pull out the field manual and it says target assault. You follow the instructions. 
And, and that's what this book is. That's what it was meant for. That's why the table of contents is very detailed because I wanted people to say, oh, here's the problem I have right now. My boss is weak. What should I do? Boom, open up the book, look up the, the section on weak boss, and you can figure out how to maneuver through that. Uh, and, and where a lot of it came from was as I, after I wrote Extreme Ownership and Dichotomy Leadership and Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, after I got done writing those books, I'm out working with people and I get asked the same questions, right? I get asked this question over and over again. Hey, my boss is, my boss is indecisive. What should I do? Hey, you know, next client. Hey, my boss is indecisive. What should I do? Finally, okay, here's what I need. Or my boss is a micromanager. How should I handle that? Like get the same questions over and over again. And what you end up with is a, a book where I'm actually giving some pretty pragmatic advice on how to, on how to lead. Yeah. Like if I could read some, some chapters here, uh, you know, when to yell at subordinates, uh, making an ultimatum as a subordinate, dealing with an, when an ultimatum is placed on you, tactfully delivering the truth, balancing praise. Like there's a lot of like very specific kind of situations, you know, like, and, and actually it was interesting, the section on insubordination, particularly with your background coming from the Navy SEALs and, and military and combat situations. And there's sort of the obvious, which is don't just follow orders because that's how many, that's how millions of people have gotten in trouble in the past. But how do you, in a military situation where you could be kind of executed for treason, let's say in some situations, how do you, what does it mean to be insubordinate? Listen, if you're getting asked to do something that's immoral, illegal, or unethical, you can't do it. You're, you're culpable. Just because somebody orders you to do something that's immor immoral, illegal, or unethical, you're culpable if you execute on those orders. So that's just a non-starter. What, what the more common case is, is getting told to do something that doesn't make as much sense or getting told to do something that you think there's a better way or getting told to do something that you think is excessively risky. So those are the times where, you, you know, we end up in a situation where we need to raise those questions up the chain of command. And that's exactly what I did throughout my career was raise earnest questions, use questions to talk to my boss and say, hey, boss, what is the exact outcome you're looking for? Because I don't think I, I don't think I understand it. And I want to make sure I'm able to execute what it is you want. Because when we ask questions of people, Again, instead of us telling them, hey, hey, James, you know, if you're my boss, hey, James, your plan doesn't, doesn't make sense, you're going to get defensive immediately. I think, what do you mean it doesn't make sense? But if I say, hey, James, I want to make sure I understand your plan fully. Can you explain to me the end state you're looking for just so I can make sure I can execute it the way you want? Well, now you start to explain it with more detail. And now if there is something wrong with the plan, the truth is going to be revealed to you, not from me, but by you. And that makes it much more palatable. Now, there's also a chance that, James, you say, oh, well, here's the deal, Jocko. Here's why we're doing it this way, and here's what's going to happen, and here's the other support we have. And I go, oh, thank you for explaining it to me. And by the way, now our relationship is still strong because I didn't you know, throw some, some accusatory question at you. James, your plan doesn't make sense, right? I don't want to do that. So by asking earnest questions and making sure we understand why we're doing what we're doing, you're going to get either... An, an understanding or an explanation of, okay, I get it. Or perhaps your boss will say, oh, I didn't know that you were going to be impacted. I didn't know that your team was going to have to work, you know, 60 hours of overtime in order to achieve this goal. And that would cost us a lot of money and it would burn out the team. What alternatives do you have? And I say, well, here's a couple of things that we thought of. So 
having a good relationship with your boss, being able to have good conversations where you're asking earnest questions, where you figure out the why, those are critical to leading up the chain of command. I think, I think one way which in terms of managing upwards, like in that situation, or even managing downwards with subordinates, and, and one theme that kind of, there's a several themes that kind of go through this, this leadership manual, which is that make, try to make everyone look good. Like make the boss, the boss has to know you're going to make him look good to his boss or her boss, or your supporters are going to know they they have a career with you, not just being, not just uh, robots being given orders. Oh yeah. Take, you know, I, I talk about this in the book as well. Take, there's a saying in the SEAL teams of, of take care of your gear and your gear will take care of you. And what they mean by that is you take care of your parachute, right? You do the proper maintenance on your parachute and you pack your parachute correctly. You take care of your parachute. When you pull the ripcord, the parachute will open. You take care of your dive rig. So you do the proper maintenance and you set up your dive rig correctly. So when you're underwater, you can breathe and it works. So you take care of your gear and your gear will take care of you. Well, it's the same with taking care of your people. And you're right. That goes up and down the chain of command. Take care of your people and your people will take care of you. If you take care of your boss, your boss will take care of you. If you take care of your team, your team will take care of you. If you take care of your peers, your peers will take care of you. It's a mutually supporting scenario that you set up and it ends up good. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS, HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. 
The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What if you're in a situation of like your boss says, hey, look, I'm just following the orders of my boss. And he said, ride these helicopters through the sandstorm so we can get to the other side and, and meet everyone. And so we have to do it. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you're up against like an immovable wall? So this is one of those situations where we, I talk about a little bit in the form of an ultimatum. And there's a great example of this. Did you ever see the, the TV series uh, Band of Brothers? No, I didn't see it. So in Band of Brothers, it's a phenomenal miniseries. It's on HBO and it's about uh, Dick Winters, who is a heroic guy from the 101st Airborne. And it's like the war, they're, they're waiting for the peace treaty. Like the war is all but over. And he's got his, his battalion and he gets ordered, like what you're, just what you're talking about, there's a river that they're kind of set up on this river and they get ordered to cross the river and do a reconnaissance. And, you know, he says to his boss, hey, boss, I'm not sure if this is a good idea. The war's almost over. The boss says, nope, you're going to do it. He says, okay. They go into a reconnaissance that night, and they get into a gunfight, and the, a guy gets wounded, or, or maybe a guy gets killed. I forget the exact scenario. But they come back across the river. You know, this is a total waste. And pass the report up the chain of command. And the next night, the colonel says the same thing. Hey, you're going to do another reconnaissance across the river. Again, Major Winters says, hey, this doesn't make any sense. The war is almost over. He says, nope, you shut up and do what I told you to do. He says, okay, roger that. And he goes and he gets with his men and they go into one of the buildings on their side of the river and they just sit down and they drink wine all night. <laughs> and the next day he sends up the report. Yep, we did the reconnaissance. We didn't see anything. So he disobeys the order. Now, this is what, and again, I talk about this in the book. If I, if, if Dick Winters would have said, no, I refuse to do it, what would the colonel have done? The colonel would have fired him and the colonel would have put someone else in charge that was going to obey his order and do what he told him to do. There would be no risk mitigation whatsoever. So then they would have gone across the river, made, maybe lose two or three more guys. So what Dick Winters did was tactfully disobey this order. Now you see a lot of cases like this in the military, the 
the book About Face, which is a book that I, I wrote the forward to when this book got re-released, but it's, it's about a guy named Colonel David Hackworth who fought in the Korean War, fought in the Vietnam War. He was a battalion commander. He spent like four straight years in Vietnam, one of the most de decorated soldiers at the time. And he got so fed up with the way the war was being fought that he ended up doing an interview that he basically said, hey, we're going to lose this war. And it was one of the first senior ranking people that said that from the army. He immediately got fired, drummed out of the army. And you question whether that was the right move because once he was drummed out of the army, he had no more influence. He couldn't mitigate the risk anymore for his troops. He lost all of his influence. So it is something that you have to carefully weigh. I mean, the same thing happened with Mattis, right? You remember General Mattis? He was working for yeah. Trump. He at a certain point, just said, I, I'm not, you know, he quit, he resigned. And he was trying to make a statement, but, you know, 24 hours later, the news cycle had run its cycle and he was out of the news and now he didn't have any more influence. And so you've got to really think about what you're doing and, and think about how you're handling the situation. So James, if you tell me to take my squad and charge up a hill with a machine gun nest at the top of the hill. And I know if I charge up that hill, all my people are going to die. And I say, I refuse to do it. And you just fire me and send someone else up the hill. They're all going to die. But if I say, okay, James, I got it. I'll take care of it. And I go and start going up the hill and we start taking heavy fire. And I say, you know what? We're going to do a different maneuver. We're going to call for fire. We're going to get aircraft in here. I can handle it at my level without losing all my influence because I decide that I'm going to make a stand and, and fall on my sword to to protect my ego. And also in a way, you know, I think I'm doing my best to protect my troops, but really in the end, how much do I protect them if I just get fired and now I've lost all control and I can't mitigate the situation. So this is one of those things that makes leadership so hard is knowing that sometimes you've got to do your best to support. Are there times where you've got to say, Hey, I absolutely refuse to do this. Sure. There are times where, where you, where I would do that. If I was getting to do, told to do something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, or that was just going to get a bunch of people killed and there was no way to mitigate it. Yeah. I'm going to say, look, I'm not doing this. But in most cases, you're getting told to do something. It's not immoral. It's not illegal. It just doesn't make sense. So are, am I better to stay in my leadership position and mitigate the risk as much as possible, satisfy what it is the boss wants, but also mitigate the impact, the negative impact to the team that's probably what I am going to do. You know, this is related to your fourth law of combat leadership, which is decentralized command. So in an organization where you're given an order and then you have, it's up to you to figure out how to fulfill it. Uh, so that's the decentralized aspect. And then you, it's easier for you to mitigate risk. Sometimes though, I imagine it's not easy to mitigate risk because they kind of have an eye on you. They're seeing everything you're doing and whether you're following orders or not. and is it possible to be insubordinate, tactfully insubordinate in, in those situations? I mean, I'm, I'm making impossible situations really. So I, you know, at some point it's going to be impossible. They're not impossible situations, but what kind of relationship do you have with your boss? Right. I've got to have a great relationship with my boss. Hmm. How do I do that? I build that relationship over time. And I talk about this in the expanded edition, right? I've got to, I've got to build trust. I've got to listen to what they say. And if, if I, if I give them trust, they're going to give me trust. If I listen to them, they're listening to me. 
If I treat them with respect, they're going to respect me. If I allow them to influence me, I'm going to get influence over them. Right. And if I care about them, they're going to care about me. So if I build that relationship, those five components of a relationship, all of a sudden, you know, my boss is listening to me. So if I've put myself into a situation, James, where you're telling me you're my boss and you're telling me to do something, let's say we're in a, not, not a war situation, but you're telling me to do something in a, in a company that's going to lose a bunch of money or a bunch of my people are going to quit. And I can't go back to you and say, Hey, James, can I, can I just ask you some question about this, the expenditure that we're about to make and what it's going to cost us and what kind of profitability we're going to lose? Cause I'm not sure I understand this. And you don't say, wait a second, we're going to lose money or wait a second, we're going to have people quit. Hold on, Jocko, sit down, tell me what's going on. I want to fix it. Right. You and I would have to not be aligned. And, and in most cases we are aligned because James, if you and I have a business and you're my boss, what I guarantee we're aligned on a couple topics. I guarantee we both want to make money. We want to be profitable. We want to take care of our customer because that allows us to make money. And we want to take care of our team because our team also allows us to make money. So if I'm going to do something that's going to hurt the team, hurt the client and lose money, why on earth would you not listen to what I was saying? So let's make sure that we build a relationship up the chain of command. And I did have this happen. You know, we were ordered to use Iraqi soldiers and conduct operations with Iraqi soldiers. And I understood why we were doing that, but they actually told us we had to take, what was it? Seven Iraqi soldiers for every one American. And that didn't make sense where we were. And I pushed back up the chain of command. I explained the situation on the ground. I explained what the alternatives were. And when I did that with my boss, my boss said, yep, no problem. You do what you got to do. So it's important that we build a good relationship. It's important that we can have good conversations. It's important that we can ask earnest questions up the chain of command. And it is important that we are aligned because if we're not aligned, that's the one time where we'll, we'll probably have some kind of a failure. If you say to me, you know, Jocko, here's what I want you to do. And I say, hey, James, that's going to get a bunch of people killed. And you say, I don't care about that. We have a problem. Or if I say, hey, James, if you do this to my team, they're going to get burned out and they're all going to quit. And you say, I don't care if your people quit. We're not aligned. Or if I say, hey, we're not going to make any money on this deal if we execute the way you want. And you say, I don't care about making money. Now we're not aligned because I know we can't have a business if we don't make money. So as long as we're aligned and we can have good conversations and we can put our egos in check, because that's the other thing that kills us, right? Your idea versus my idea and you're the boss and I don't like your idea. I think my idea is better. And I, I put a stake in the ground over the fact that I like my idea better than your idea, that's something that's stupid. It's just dumb, right? We don't know what the future is. We don't know what the market's going to do. We don't know what the enemy's going to do. And yet I'm saying, no, this is the way we should do it, James. You're, your plan is bad. And I can't even articulate why my plan is better than yours. And then I draw a line in the sand and say, I'll never do what you're telling me to do. That's stupid. That's stupid. And I wonder though, like when you know, sometimes there's big egos involved. Like, like take a Silicon Valley company where the top of the organization, they're not only, let's say, the founder and the boss, but they're multi-billionaires and the employees want to please their superiors. And so they might not agree with everything, but they're kind of afraid for a lot of reasons to complain. Like maybe they want to, it's, it's like your chapter on Yesman. Like they want to look eager and, and ready for the boss so they get promoted and they too can become wealthy like their bosses. You know, how does the leader sort of figure out what's really going on? And, and in the same token, how do they avoid the ego of, you know, let's say they were a success at the age of 24 and, and it kept going? Yeah, that's something that 
they're usually unfortunately going to learn the hard way, right? When they realize that they didn't listen, you know, think of how successful you were at certain points, right? And you were thinking, hey, I can do everything I do. Everything I touch turns to gold, right? Yeah, and that's the worst. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a second. Maybe I need to put my ego in check a little bit. Maybe I need to listen a little bit more. That's one thing about combat. One of the best things about combat is combat is very humbling, right? It's very humbling. And same thing with the Silicon Valley CEOs. Like, sure, you've seen some of them that have done really well, but there's some of them that have done really well and then they fall apart and they make bad investments or they make bad decisions. You know, there's a bunch of series on TV about some of these individuals that have done great, but at a certain point, their ego takes over and they're not making the best decisions. They're not listening to anybody else and they make decisions that are bad and they end up destroying their company or destroying their lives and being removed from these companies. So at some point, yes, humility, you have to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm glad I was able to get the company to this point, but we're in uncharted waters. I need to listen to what other people say. I mean, these are, there's examples of people, they don't listen to their employees, Never mind their employees. They don't even listen to their board, right? Their board is asking them to do things and they say, oh, we're not going to do it that way. And again, what do you think that the board wants you to lose money? Do you think that the board wants the company to fail? No, the board wants the company to succeed. That's why they're giving you this advice. So we have to be humble enough to listen. And again, this, this goes back to building relationships because one of the best ways to break down the ego is by just having good relationships with people where you go, oh, you know what, James, James, smart guy. He's been, he's got some lessons learned. We're good friends. I listen to what he says and he listens to what I say and we can come to a good conclusion together. But if you and I don't know each other or we're at odds with each other, all of a sudden it's your ego against my ego. I'm not listening to a damn thing that you say, James. And now I get myself into trouble. Yeah, it's, it's interesting about not listening to the board because this gets back to, you know, CEOs, you know, because they're, they're put in charge or they're the founder of a company, there's a certain ego that almost has, or a certain confidence, let's say, that has to go with that. And so they are going to, in general, trust their opinion probably more than others, particularly if there's not that relationship in place. But I, I almost choose not to go on boards anymore because so many times I've had to kind of take control of a situation where a CEO is, I think, doing the wrong thing, but it's my fault. I'm saying that I didn't build the relationship enough so that we would have an open dialogue when things went bad. Yep. Things were always great. It was a great open dialogue when things were going good. But like, let's say the CEO didn't realize his burn rate it was going to put him out of business. And I did realize this from my own experience, that there was no way he was going to raise money in time. There sometimes would be painful situations and it's scary. You have to take extreme ownership, but also a lot of it is maybe I didn't build the relationship enough, or maybe I had to be harsh at the end because it was an emergency situation. Right. I, I don't know. I, I, I would often get into situations where I found out it was hard to really communicate when times were bad because we didn't have enough practice at that. And it just became too painful for me to be on boards in many cases. Yeah. The reason we talk about, well, the reason we talk about everything, everything that I talk about, there's a reason I talk about it. It's because human beings have these natural tendencies. So one of them is ego, and especially when it comes to people that are in positions that took a lot of success to get there. So for instance, guys in the SEAL teams, Guys in the SEAL teams, the officers in the SEAL teams, the leaders in the SEAL teams, they've been selected. They've gone through this hard training. They've made it through the training. They, they, so they've been put in this position. And of course, 
that builds their ego up, right? And they have to have some ego, otherwise they wouldn't have even tried. Same thing with a CEO of a company, a startup. Who thinks, oh, I can pull this idea together and I can build this company, and then they succeed at it and their ego grows even more. The reason we talk about ego so much is because we as human beings, especially in leadership positions, tend to believe, we tend to start to believe that we're great. We tend to start to believe that, that we are unstoppable and that every decision we make is great. So that's why we talk about it so much because like you, I've seen it bite so many people, both on the battlefield, in business and in life. It's so interesting. You know, people, well, you know, I'm not going to let my ego drive that. And then you realize there's military history chock full of decisions that were ego-based decisions that ended up getting thousands of people killed. Sometimes the individual that was making the decision himself got killed because they didn't want to admit that they were wrong. So if that can happen, if people can literally ride their ego to their death, it certainly influences the way people think on in, as the CEO of a company that's making decisions that thinks, you know what, I've been right this whole time. I don't need to listen to anybody else. They just need to believe. They need to get on board. And it turns out bad and it gets ugly quick. Yeah, particularly like, and you have a chapter on this, don't take things personally. Like if, if up and down the, the hierarchy of an organization, somebody is taking things personally, it can be very painful. It, it, it just sort of like a, a, a radiation that spreads out. Like if, you know, one time I was, I was in a situation where an employee was very upset at me that I had sold the company and the new ownership, you know, was, was firing people. And, and this person was extremely upset at me. And it's very important in those situations. And you talk about this in the book, it's very important to detach and to really understand what this person is really saying. Even if they're throwing every insult in the world at you and really hitting buttons to, to try to hurt you. You still have to be detached because they're having their human experience yep. in your organization. Yeah. And they're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it hurts, right? That's yeah. why these things hurt. And, and I've, I've found so often, number one, when someone's angry, when someone else is emotional, what you have to do is listen to them. And you got to be careful. Actually, James, you can't detach too much where you come into my office and you say, Jocko, I can't believe you did this. You sold this company. Now they're firing everybody. And I say, you know, hey, James, that's business and you need to calm down. Uh, that is not going to help our situation. I, again, this is another part of yeah. the book, Reflect and Diminish. I need to reflect some of your frustration, right? I need to show you that, yes, I understand that you're mad and listen to what you have to say. You know, when people are mad, I listen to them. When people are complaining, I listen to them. When people are frustrated, I listen to them. People say, what do I do when someone's mad? What should I say to them? Don't say anything. Listen to what they have to say and actually try and find where you agree with them. So yeah. Someone says, I can't believe you sold this company. Now they're firing everybody. And you say, well, how was I supposed to know? You say, you know what? You're right. I did not assess that properly. I didn't think they were going to cut costs this drastically. And now we got to figure out where we're going to go from here. This is on me. And it's like, hey, I actually listen to what people have to say. That's why I think I'm relatively hard to insult because pretty much when, you know, you, James, say to me, you know, you're, you're, uh, I think you could have done a better job on this book, Jocko. I'm going to say, well, I, I actually agree with you. Yeah, I know. I think it could have been a little bit longer. I think there's some areas I could have gone into more detail. Or you say, you know, hey, Jocko, your podcast uh, is too focused on war. And I say, well, yeah, you know, you're probably right. I can only relate to so many people. So when people want to bring something to my attention or try and insult me, I, I usually 
they're they're probably right. And the more it stings me, that means the probably more right that they are. And it's just a good way to de-escalate things to say to yourself, all right, well, James is saying that, you know, I was too short. I was too, uh, I was too quick in making this decision to sell the company. And you know what? He's probably right. And the more that bothers me, the more you're probably right. And I probably made too quick of a decision. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to frame that and hang it up uh behind my desk. You're probably right. Cause that probably that is the, res- the the correct response in almost every one of these situations. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, the government is a weird type of organization because unlike a very let's say a company where the founder and CEO brought in the people who brought in the people who brought in the people. So it's a very kind of linear type of, you know, a, a natural evolution of how, of the leadership levels in the company and everybody's kind of supposedly on the same page, at least ideally. The government is interesting because at the very top level, you have elected officials who change all the time. Then at the next level, whether it's, you know, state department officials working in embassies or officers and military, they're lifers in many cases. So they go through Democrat, Republican, Democrat administrations that are always changing. And then even lower, let's say the difference between an enlisted person and an officer, the officer might've just had an education and ROTC, and then suddenly they're a Lieutenant somewhere. But meanwhile, all these people that they command have been there forever. So it seems like in the government in particular is like a screwed up type of leadership situation. And, and you see that maybe in how policy is enacted around the world. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. The way the government is run is is definitely challenging. And I, and I think w- the longer we kind of continue in this direction, the more difficult it's going to become because the more dug in people get around the world that they've created for themselves. So, you know, like you mentioned, the people that have been in government for 20, 30 years, 40 years, they don't, they've got, they're going to keep their little world as pristine and as protected as they can. And regardless of who gets elected, they have a lot of power to protect their world. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in in a bunch of different areas of the government, whether it's the bureaucratic system that runs healthcare or the bureaucratic system that runs education or the bureaucratic system that runs energy or the bureaucratic system that runs defense. Like all these are big, giant bureaucratic systems that are very, very difficult to change. There's just nepotism there and people are protecting their part of the government. They're protecting their little existence. And some of this tension is normal, right? Some of tension is good, right? It's the, the, let's say the military people should be saying we need more money and there's a natural tendency uh, a natural tension between the energy sector that's saying oh well we need money too and the environmental sector that's so there's a good natural tension but where the problem comes in is where is when we lose alignment with the overall mission and when yeah. my little part of the government becomes more important, and I'm willing to undermine your part of the government to take from you, even though I know it might not be the best for the overall country. And that's where we run into a problem, where people aren't willing to say, you know what, we've spent enough money on this department, and we don't need to grow this department any bigger right now. Instead, there's no one in the government, 
No one in the government ever says, you know what, my department is big enough and I can actually give up. No one ever says that in the government. All they say is I need more people. I need more money. That's what they all say all the time. No one ever says, hey, we're big enough. I don't need any more people and we can, we can lower our budget. These are words that are not spoken. Right. And that's where you run into a problem. They're not doing the best for the overall country. They're only trying to look out for their small sector of the government. And that, that's a disaster. Yeah. And, and like you said, it doesn't really reverse. So like ultimately, it could take hundreds of years. But you know, that's why people are worried about the future of America in some cases, because you, we can't get out of this power, power spiral that you know, different leaderships take at different times. And I'm not even talking about any one. I mean, this has been happening every single president since John Adams. So uh, uh, it, it's, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's dangerous to predict the end of America. A lot of people have lost huge bets doing that, and I would never do that. But it does seem like it's hard to re- reverse process when, when the, the actual mechanics are broken on the inside. Yeah, that being said, you know, just like what we talked earlier about people changing when traumatic events happen. And I, I think that's one thing that, that America is able to do is when, when things get bad enough, we make changes. And, and so, look, even though, you know, the country is very divided right now, even though there's some economic turmoil, you know, th- we still have, basically everyone has an iPhone, everyone has Wi-Fi, everyone has food. Like there's, you can't say that things are that bad, right? Right. In fact, they're not, you know, a lot of people talk about the divisiveness now. And first of all, we've had an actual freaking civil war where hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. But even in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, there was massive divisiveness in the country. There was people, there was police officers getting murdered. There was like 35 or 40 police officers that were executed in that time frame. And so it, it, it's, yeah, sure, it's rough right now, but it's not as bad as we often think it is. And it's definitely not as bad as the media wants it to be, right? The media, every story you click on from the media is, is catastrophic. The sky is falling. That's what happens every day. The sky falls if you follow the media, right? Every storm is the worst storm ever. You know, we just had this hurricane out in California. Barely even rained, James. <laughs> I, I was there, actually. Yeah. So, uh, right, I, I'm like... I, I remember thinking, oh, I guess if someone just spits on the ground, the media calls this a hurricane in California. Yeah. I mean, there were some play- parts that were that were definitely impacted in a big way. But overall, compared to, you know, a big hurricane that hits the East Coast and, and causes billions of dollars worth of damage, it wasn't even in the ballpark. But that's the way the media reports that. You know, every everything that happens is catastrophic world ending because they want you to click on that. They want to make their money. And all it does is exacerbate the emotions of, of our fellow countrymen. And it's a, it's a negative thing. So I think there'll be a little bit of burnout on that. I think even right now, I think people are tuning less and less into the mainstream media to find out what's going on because they know that it's just a big hype train of emotions and we're not buying into it. We know it's not healthy. It's not healthy to think that every every day that the, the world is going to fall apart when the reality is the world's going to be okay. Yeah, I think it's I think it's always helpful to hold on to that, that we have seen extreme conflict, like you said, in the 1960s and the 1860s was certainly worse than what we're experiencing right now in terms of national divisiveness. 
And I'm sure there's plenty of other times that were, were just as divisive and we survived it. Uh, you know, there's other issues with, you know, economics and so on, but like take, take the Ukraine situation when without necessarily revealing or talking about the politics of it, how would you, again, there's like 20 layers of leadership until you get to weapons being sent to people on the ground. Like how, how do you think you would deal with what's happening in Ukraine? Again, to me, this boils down to relationships, right? What kind of relationships, how well do you know the people on the ground that are, that are making decisions? And listen, if you give weapons and technology to a country, they're going to keep fighting forever, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when it's their homeland. So the Ukrainians, you know, this is their home. They, they can't, they can't give up their home. There's, this is just not an option for them. So they're going to keep fighting. And as long as we keep sending weapons and they think they can, they can maintain what they've got, there's not going to be any compromise. They don't have any reason to compromise when they've got an unlimited supply of weapons. Now, at some point, they're going to run out of people too. And then maybe they'll compromise. But what have, we, what have they been through then? A generation of men killed? Is that what it's going to take before they come to the table? So right now, you know, I think no one seems to be focused on finding a diplomatic solution. And anyone that says to look for a diplomatic solution are often saying, well, oh, but, but Russia invaded. Yeah, Russia invaded. That was wrong. You know, they're going to get, they're going to get, they're going to get punished for that. And they are getting punished for that. They're losing a lot of people, but we can sit here on the sidelines and keep, you know, throwing weapons into the, into the fight. So I think yeah. we need to use our, I think we need to use the leverage behind what we're giving to get people to start having some serious talks around how to get this thing solved. It's a freaking bloodbath over there. It's a nightmare. I know. And like, it's so cavalier the way people make decisions where thousands or even tens of thousands of 18 year olds might get killed. It's like a horrible thing. Yeah. N never mind might get killed. I mean, they're getting butchered on both sides right now. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's also very difficult to tell what's really going on over there because n no one can give an accurate report of how many Russians can, no one can give an app accurate report of how many Ukrainians have died. We don't know. You know, some people say it's been over a hundred thousand several hundred thousand, like no one knows. They can't even give an accurate number. So you're right. I, I, this is what I do know. An 18 year old kid, that's a Russian kid that's been sent there as a, you know, as a conscript to go and fight. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. And a 18 year old Ukrainian kid. Yeah. He wants to protect his home, but he doesn't want to die. And what, w this is the thing with war. War is a test of wills. That's what it is. It's a test of wills and it's a test of wills that we didn't know the outcome and that's why we're fighting. So right now, who has the stronger will? Who is willing to sacrifice more of their blood and money? Who is willing to sacrifice more? That, that's what this boils down to. And there's only one way to know and that's when one side gives up. You know, we made this tragic mistake in Vietnam. We thought that if we can kill a hundred Vietnamese soldiers for every one of our soldiers that dies will win. But we, but, and we did, that was what the kill ratio was like. That it was like a hundred to one, sometimes 150 to one. When you look at the overall casualties in the war, we killed hundreds of them for every one American that they killed. 
But guess what? They didn't care. They had the will. It was their country. They had the will to sacrifice, and we didn't. But, but you know, you, you're right, though. Like, like, you look at the Republican debate. One side says, um, you know, you can't let a murderer invade an, a sovereign country. And the other side says, people are dying. So we got to stop this. But both sides are, are making sense, right? They both are, uh, you know, have their, have their huge groups that agree with either side. And, and it makes it complicated because on the one hand, it seems sort of naive to say, well, I'm not going to support any war because death. And on the other side is, look, you can't let dictators have their way or else, you know, all your allies will, will get destroyed. And so, so it's really like this gray area where it's hard to know what to do. Yeah. But what you do need to do is you need to talk and you need to figure out what the compromise is going to be. You, you have to figure out some kind of a compromise. And until you figure out some kind of a compromise, there's going to continue to be a bloodbath. And just like anything, you have to put the egos aside. You, and, and that's what makes this really difficult. You know, you look at the Donbass region, Donbass region is like 95% Russian speaking people, ethnic Russians. And that was sort of the, you know, the, the Crimea, like there's a bunch of things that weigh in here, but what is, where are we willing to compromise? And at what point, you know, at what point have you taken enough damage? You know, when I say, Hey James, you have to do what I tell you to do. Or I'm going to cut off one of your fingers. And you say, no, I'm not going to do it. So I cut off one of your fingers. And then I say, no, you have to do what I tell you to do or else I'm going to cut off another one of your fingers. Eventually you say, okay, I'll come to here. Don't cut off any more of my fingers. We make a deal, right? That's what we have to do. By the way, I want something from you, James, right? That's why I'm threatening you. I'm going to cut off your finger unless you give me this amount of money. And at a certain point, you know what? You say, you know what, John, I'll find. Here's the money you can have. I couldn't give you, you know, 5 million, but I can give you 2 million. And this leaves me with, you know, seven fingers left. And that's, that's where I'm good. I don't want to give up any more fingers. We make a deal. And listen, I wanted 5 million. I don't get it. You wanted all your fingers. You don't get it. You don't get all your fingers. I don't get all the money I want. We have to make a compromise. Otherwise, guess what happens? I cut off all your fingers. You can't even pay me anymore because you can't make that money because you have no ability to. And now we all lose. So you got to come up with a compromise in these situations. And and the idea of no compromise, uh, it only works if we are going to do total war, which means we have to fight everybody, which doesn't right, make any keep, sense because who's willing to do that? you have to, to keep that? feeding in the weapons and keep spending the money because like you say, it's not going to end as long as everybody keeps feeding weapons into it. Yep. I mean, we could, I mean, they could literally kill all the Ukrainian men. I mean, there's less humans, there's less military age males in Ukraine. And right. we could keep giving them weapons until they're all dead. So let me ask you this. Like here now you've written all of these excellent books on leadership. Like hopefully these are books are taught in, in leadership class for generations to come. And you, but you do po an excellent podcast about war and you know, enormous amount about, and you're constantly learning about the history of war, current wars, war strategies, you know, fighting strategies and so on. Why don't you, do your next book on the topic of war and, and get a voice in this arena. Well, I'm actually already very close to done with the draft of my next book. So it's, it, and you look, all my books are somewhat about war, but 
I, well, they use war as examples and, right. and use those to those examples to teach about leadership, but you don't really kind of go in there, wade in and say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is different from how we did it in Vietnam or World War II or these other situations around the world. So here's how maybe we should consider things. Like you don't really dive into uh, the, 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 the current situation. Yeah. So w one thing that I've been slow rolling on and is uh, a series of podcasts of why we lost these wars. Mm. Why'd we lose in Korea? Why'd we lose in Vietnam? Why'd we lose in Iraq? Why'd we lose in Afghanistan? Why are we losing these wars? And there's a bunch of reasons. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to talk about them. Um, but one of the one of the key components is that we have not ever lost a war that we needed to win. We, we only lose wars that we don't need to win. And so that would tell you very quickly, don't get into wars that you don't need to win. Don't get into wars that you don't need to win. If you don't need to be in the war, if you don't need to win the war, don't be in the war because you're not willing to make the sacrifice. You're not willing to make the sacrifice. So why do it? And we go into wars that we don't need to win all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Are there any wars we didn't need to win that we won? Oh, sure. If you end up, you know, we win in a Grenada. We, we, you know, we yeah. win now there pretty quick. The first Iraq war, we didn't need to win it, but we went with overwhelming power. We, you can win just like you can win fights that you don't need to win, right? Because you're just stronger and you can overpower your opponent. But if it turns into a brawl and you don't really need to win it and you look, the bell rings in the 12th round and it's, and it's going to go on for unlimited rounds around the 12th round, you say, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And you don't come out. You don't answer the bell. You have made enough sacrifice and you don't, you don't need to win it. So you walk away. And that's what we've done. We don't need to win these wars. So we walk away. It's, it's a terrible situation to get yourself into. Yeah, and even even this Ukraine thing, it's really unclear what our involvement is, what we're trying to win on either side, Russia or Ukraine. And you know, it's just a confusing thing. Yeah, and I mean, Russia is not the Soviet Union. Russia is not communist. Look, Putin might not be the nicest guy in the world, but that's that, that's not the government that we fought the Cold War against. It's a different group of people. It's, it's, it's many of them from the same thread, but they're not running communism. That's not what they're doing. So it's a, it's, it's definitely a tough situation. And certainly that's a war that Ukraine needs to win. And you could also say it's a, a war that Russia needs to win. Probably not as bad as Ukraine. So when it comes to a test of wills, it's most likely the U Ukrainians that will prevail from a test of wills, except for the fact that this is a war of attrition. And this, the, the Russians have more people. And, you know, if you and I had two companies and we were your company, you, you were a well-capitalized company and I didn't have as much money as you did, even though I really wanted to beat you and it all came down to advertising, you could outspend me on advertising and you're going to win. Right. And the good, the good thing about companies is that there, it's not like you're protecting specific land and real estate. Like you could outmaneuver in your own way. So when you're smaller, that gives you some advantages over the entities that are bigger and you could play on, you could sort of 
define the playing ground when you're in a company in a, in a commercial situation. Yeah. You can say, okay, I'm not going to sell all the books in the world, but I'm going to be a content media company about military history and sell books, podcasts, whatever. And that's what you do. Yep. And, and, and that's how you fight Amazon. Yep. And it's interesting because the Ukrainians are doing a lot of, and we've kind of suckered them into this. The Ukrainians are doing a lot of conventional warfare. You know, you see them running around in trenches um, instead of doing unconventional warfare. And it's going to be tough to beat this so beat the Russians in conventional warfare. But that's what, what would be an example of unconventional warfare here. Un unconventional warfare is guerrilla warfare. Unconventional warfare is, yeah. you know, snipers, sneak attacks, uh, IEDs. Like it's what we fought against in Vietnam. It's what we fought against in Iraq. It's what we fought against in Afghanistan. We're fighting against unconventional warfare. And it makes it very difficult for a large conventional force to achieve victory. And yet somehow the Ukrainians have gotten suckered into going toe-to-toe -to -toe attrition warfare, in many cases, against the Russians, which is not a good move. So what, why aren't they doing at least a little bit of both? Like, why aren't they they're, doing the IEDs and snipers some, and so on? They're definitely doing some, but I just, I, I'm not sure why they haven't done that yet. It also, it's because it requires, it requires humility. Because what you have to do is you have to give some land up. What you have to do is you have to run away. What you have to do is you have to sucker punch people. Hmm. It's, it's very counter ego. <laughs> you got to be. Yeah, all it's interesting. Like, like think of a Gulf War II, Iraq. When we, it was very confusing when we actually got into Iraq in whatever it was, 2002, because no one was there or 2003. I forget what year now. 2003. But yeah, so but no one was there. We got into Baghdad and like everybody had left. And so that's something that a country has to be willing to do. Now, at the time, we thought, we didn't know if this was a good strategy or a bad strategy for, for them. It turned out to be, I, actually, I don't even know what the final outcome of that strategy was, well, given what happened. Yeah, well, what but, happened there was we disbanded the entire Iraqi military instead of saying, all right, you guys lost. Now we're going to put you to work. Instead, we disbanded them all. We put them all out of jobs. It was just... We made a, a bunch of really bad decisions, and it's because we hadn't thought through things the way we should have. Yeah, and so that, that's a, this is what makes me worried about the state of things in the long run, is that it seems like we keep veering towards worse and worse decisions, both on a military level, an economic level, you know, dealing with this pandemic and, and so on. Like the, the major decisions that affect the lives of everyone, it, it seems like we're just trending towards bad decision-making. Yes. We are doing a lot of dumb things globally and nationally in America at this time. You are correct. So, 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 given that, I, a, I hope people read your book. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the title again. I'm always, this happens to me every single podcast. I can never. I'm always afraid I'm gonna say the title wrong. Leadership strategy and tactics field manual expanded edition. There you go. And second, final thing is, I want to ask you. If I were to just drink Jocko creatine, you know, you have all these supplements out there. I saw an ad for Jocko creatine the other day. If I was just to just drink it or use it uh, without doing a workout, what happens? What does creatine do if you don't like burn it off in a workout? Well, one, one thing that's good is they found recently that uh, creatine is not only good for being stronger, it also helps your mental acuity, helps your cognitive growth. So it's a good supplement to take all around, not just for the physical effects. Okay. I didn't know yep. that. It won't have a bad effect if you're not like burning it off through working out? Oh, no, not at all. No. 
it, it's definitely it's definitely good for you on on multiple levels. I'm gonna have to try some some Jocko creatine. I'm gonna order it today. Order it up. You could use it. I'm telling you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Jocko. Thanks once again, and I look forward to the next time you come on the podcast. Hopefully, hopefully we'll do it in person again. Right on, man. Looking forward to it. Good seeing you as well.